0: Well,
1: a good day to you all, ladies and gentlemen. I'm William Powell, and I'm the the Editor-in-Chief at Natural Gas World. And this is our new podcast, for which I'm delighted to say we have invited Lewis MacDonald, who is the Global Head of Energy at the law firm Herbert Smith Freehills. Based in London, he has extensive experience of energy law in many jurisdictions, including, of course, Asia, where he worked for many years. We're going to be discussing the new developments in the energy market. On top of the COVID-19 pandemic, which has wiped trillions off the value of companies and slashed upstream spending by maybe a third of this, by a third this year, 30% off, we have a number of problems to deal with collectively. First of all, there is the fact that the global population is set to rise quite fast over the next 30 years, which is the last real investment cycle so by 2050 we could be looking at a world with maybe 3 billion more people on it that has a number number of very very serious implications for energy supply the burgeoning middle class will expect better access to electricity to heat and power clean cooking and everything else that most of the western world has become used to over the last few decades that's the first that's the first thing is going to be the, the rising demand second of course is the fact that we have this immovable target of 1.5 percent maximum global warming growth by that year as well and if that weren't enough of course oil and gas reserves once they're on they tend to decline so it's not enough simply to say there's enough oil and gas we have to get oil and gas coming for decades this presents a number of challenges and lewis will be discussing these with us as we turn to the questions of financing Law and how and how the uh, the money can be raised to fund these projects first of all, uh, Lewis looking at the, uh, the Big question which has arisen over the last couple of years with increasing intensity I think it's true to say is the environmental social governance agenda, which has shot to the top of a number of companies uh, if you like transformation plans these range from the relatively humdrum and cosmetics such as London petroleum calling it itself now London to so the far more serious upheavals at the majors, such as BP, of which we'll be hearing more uh, in September. First of all, though, on on ESG, there's an impression that it's mainly affecting the uh, companies active in the European markets and less so in Asia. Would you think that is a, a fair uh, assessment? And do you think that funding is going to be easier in different parts of the world from the European Union? As you know, the EIB announced plans to withhold funding for. Uh, fossil fuel projects post 2021. Lewis. Yeah, thanks, William. Um, Look, and
2: thanks for orienting um, the discussion as you did at the start. Um, I think it's good to point out some of those statistics as you have around population, uh, rising standards of living, um, and also the climate goals, because I think they do orient the the discussion in a way that's that's important to remember. in relation to ESG, um, obviously, I suppose prior to COVID, that was really the major issue um, being discussed in the boardrooms of the major oil and gas companies and the banks and private equity funding um, funding the companies. And um, of course, we've seen a shift over the last few months, but still it's very much on the agenda. And these you know, are redoubling their commitments uh, and their efforts. In relation to esg so it's certainly not a flash in the pan it's certainly not going away um just some context about me i mean william you said i was based in asia for a while um so i'm my accent is a perth accent um very much an oil and gas town or let's say an energy town these days Um, (laughs) undoubtedly and um i i moved to london about 15 years ago and had around four years in london and then I moved out to Asia, had time in Singapore for four and a half years, then in Korea, then in Japan, and I actually moved back to London last year. So that gave me an interesting couple of comparisons around maybe how these things are looked at in the different markets. So actually, when I was in London uh, leaving in 2008, um, just around the time of the GFC, coincidence, I guarantee it, um, I was involved in some of the carbon capture and storage in in the UK. So um, I was helping... Um, a BP with its investment with Rio Tinto into hydrogen energy. If you remember back then mm-hmm. they they were very hard at uh, capturing investments and also involved yeah, yeah. with Central when they invested into progressive energy which is looking at an 800 megawatt clean coal um, uh, project on side. and having been involved in those transactions and then I was involved in um, British Gas as it then was their first coal seam gas investment was in the UK it wasn't in Queensland um, and then i moved out to asia and i was a real difference at that point even between those types of um investments in the in europe and what was happening in asia and in asia that was a long way away you know that type of that type of um activity that type of project in fact out in asia at that point it was uh the stuff we were getting in, involved in was um non-core asset divestments uh during the you know the the, mm-hmm. the dip in the economy that we saw with the global financial crisis so just to emphasise the cycles and how they how they go, and over the course of that the ten years I had in Asia, um, of course um, investment in renewables increased, um, but still it's but it's nowhere near where it's at in Europe. And then returning to Europe last year, uh, having been in Korea, Japan, as I said, I really noticed the difference in emphasis on ESG. Uh, it was absolutely palpable, you know, in dealing with the European companies, mm-hmm. compared to the Asian companies. Um, Look, I guess it's been—it's very much um, a, a, a part of the energy markets in Europe, much more so than in Asia. Although, as I said, Asian uh, energy policies are changing, and they are um, uh, sort of bringing more renewables into the mix and becoming more and more aware of climate change issues as as standards of living uh, rise across developing Asia. Um, but it, there's some way to go to, to catch up. Um, Let's face it as well, there has been a serious uptick in the awareness and concern in relation to climate change and ESG more broadly over the last 12 months. We've all seen a big social change um, and and there has been that to some extent in Asia as well. But William, in terms of the chilling effect on investment, I think um, that's certainly something that we're seeing in relation to fossil fuels. You know, um, there's that statistic around how many financial institutions are no longer willing to invest in fossil fuels, or are divesting? You know, it's something. I think the latest is around 1,200 institutions controlling more than 14 trillion dollars in capital um, have said that they are divesting, or they don't want to invest in in fossil fuels, which is an incredible, incredible number of institutions, it's an incredible amount of money, um, and that's them doing that voluntarily, if, if you like, um, based on <laughs> there's consumer demand and consumer sentiment, and maybe an expectation of where laws will go. In the future. You know, there's this notion of the inevitable policy response to climate change and all the social issues and what that's going to mean from a regulatory point of view. And to some extent, this money is coming off the table in advance of that. Um, you know, you've got the disclosure requirements on companies which make uh, directors very nervous in terms of their, yes. um, this, uh, their responsibilities. You've got banks being more reluctant to lend. You mentioned the EIB, you know, Europe's major infrastructure funding bank. Uh, deciding doesn't want to invest anymore in non-abated gas fired power, let alone coal. Um, and then you've got the oil and gas companies themselves and their own willingness to invest in oil and gas. You know, you mentioned yes. the they have, and, and really that's largely about pushing into being more broadly-based energy companies, focusing on yeah. power, power and to some extent decarbonisation. So I think as it stands at the moment, we have seen rather a chilling effect on investment in the sector where it goes from here you know we'll we'll, we'll, let's see
1: well of course it's just the first time there's been a problem although this is possibly one of the biggest magnitude but you you recall back to 2008 and of course in 2014 as well the oil price then fell very very low now that was a trigger for a lot of small pe backed companies uh such as well crystal for example and neptune to plunge in and they were expecting by now i think to be readying to spin their companies off to somebody else. Uh, but of course, those, those investors don't seem to be there. How do you think they're going to manage their own businesses, given that their business model of six years ago has been overtaken by events?
2: Yeah, well, as you say, William, you know, last time around, if you like, the PE companies came to the rescue, to some extent, and um, yeah. decided to, time to get in and uh, accumulate portfolios of assets uh with a view to exit as they normally do. Of course now they're having to have a look at those strategies and think about whether a buy and hold strategy is more realistic, maybe operating a bit more like a traditional um oil and gas yes. player, where that is effectively the strategy of um major oil and gas companies. Um, you know, that's not to say that the IPO market won't return at some point in the future. But right now, of course, um, you know, you'd struggle with an IPO um in, in that scenario. So I think um, the prospects of those private equity companies, if you like, on mass uh, raising additional funds and and coming into the market, it, it's 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 a slim prospect. However, if they've already raised the fund, or they've gone out and raised a special purpose vehicle, you know, as we know, Blackstone has, and you've got other um, yeah. already raised the fund, they all have a strong incentive to spend that money because it's been raised. Once it's raised. Um, the portfolio company is entitled to spend it. It's, it's very hard for a funder to renege on a commitment in the private equity structure. But right. so once the money's been and mm-hmm. over the period of time, and of course those who are um, uh, controlling, if you like, those equity commitments, they will want to spend. So you will see some private equity investment to the extent funds have been raised. Raising new money, that's hard. Um, and, and another point there maybe the maybe the way that uh if you, if you like that kind of money is is raised in the purpose of it maybe we spent a bit differently you know so right. you have to, it to the upstream uh, in the traditional sense of owning upstream assets and then there's the possibility of raising it to if you like contribute to the capital of the upstream companies in a different way and we can talk further about that if, if you like
1: no i think in this interesting area because Infrastructure is one area, and I think where, one area where law firms can come in and be creative is is spreading value across the, the chain from production to uh, the transport. There's been a number of deals involving pipelines, involving energy capacity, where the holder seems to sell them off, but then lease it back. So the money gets spread across more more companies, enriching more people, I hope.
2: <laughs> yeah, perhaps an efficient allocation of capital, if you like, but we are seeing that. Yes. I mean just this week you've had ADNOC announcing it's very large Transaction is the biggest infrastructure deal of the year, it was announced I think three days ago. Over twenty billion US dollars um, from mm. six funds, um, including you know some of the major funds in the world, the Brookfield uh, GIC of Singapore, um, one of the Canadian pension funds is there as well, and they've effectively mm. put a transaction together with Adnoc, which provides Adnoc with that money, you know, in exchange for a payment stream over time, um, but fundamentally involving the pipeline system that adnock owns so it's a very creative transaction
1: that's a fantastic yeah that's that's also a fantastic virtue confidence isn't it really it it shows that there's still despite what we read there's still going to be huge amounts of demand for oil and gas i mean that's sort of that is writ large really that cat's pipeline deal in the uk or the 40s deal it's all about how do you get huge amounts of money over the very long term and allocated and, and there seems to be
2: yeah the way well, forward. i think that's right i think it is a vote of confidence in the sector because of course that money has to be paid over a, you know a, a period of time you know let's say you know it'll be mm. it'll be decades but um and it's not a, you know with those types of investments there's more of them on the horizon you know um shell is looking to structure A similar type of transaction in Queensland in relation to the LNG uh, asset and you'll see these coming more and more on stream because there's a large demand for them uh, from the infrastructure Mm. funds you know there's trillions with the infrastructure funds and as I've said it's difficult to raise that money and apply it to the upstream directly with upstream exposure it's less difficult to contribute that money in a way where the um the, the exposure is to the creditworthiness of the entities that are on the other side of the transaction. because these are you know <coughs> in the Ad world, very creditworthy parties. and if and if a very creditworthy party is willing to um, commit to you to make payments over a period of time, you know with the appropriate uh, protections in place, so safe investment, you know um, well, at least commensurate with the rate of return that you're going to enjoy. But those types of investments, because the rate of return can be lower than the rate of return you require yes. for an investment, then yeah. you can have more. Yes. And so they're, 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 they're quite effective. And I think we're going to see more and more of this. And again, link it back to the, um, the sort of general backturning of much of the financial world on oil and gas companies. Um, not to say they've completely done that, but there is a, there is a shift. There is a, a trend, if you will um mm. and now we've got the infrastructure funds that are very cashed up and looking looking yes. to deploy capital in a major way very willing to to come forward and you'll i think you'll see that these asset sales or these transactions will have a lot of demand and you in many cases I capital cost of capital
1: shootout is often what it's referred to as <laughs> yeah that's interesting phrase i mean we began seeing this uh in britain or europe i can say uh, probably about. 15 or so years ago when, I think it was the intercollector pipeline, uh, a large number of grids in, in Germany and Europe generally, they were bought out by pension funds, teachers, pension, you know, very, very boring, you might say, uh, widows and orphans type things where they need only 5 or 6% return. That's all they're looking for. And it's the utility rate of return, basically, isn't it? It's not really the big cash scene used to be like when BP in the forties pipeline, you know, this is much now, much more now boring, predictable, stable, long-term. People know there's going to be demand for gas or oil in this case. They can see that there's going to be regular regular payments. It's also tightly regulated. Uh, it's, you can't really get that far wrong. You know, European security supply depends on it working. So arguably it's, it's, it's safe as houses.
2: Yeah, arguably, but trust me, a lot of time is spent to, <laughs> to make sure that it is. It's never quite as simple as, and um, there's of course there's tension yeah. between the buyer and the seller. Whereas the seller yeah. wants to expose as little as possible of their broader business to the buyer. Yes, the buyer wants the safest possible transaction. Because if it gets too safe, well, it's very similar to corporate finance and should be uh, priced mm. accordingly. But as it gets closer and closer to the relevant assets that are the subject of the sort of, as you said, sale and leaseback inverted commas for those who can't see yeah. um, you know the rate of return is going to go up the risk is going to go up so there's a balance and all of these are yeah. different and one other thing to mention is from the perspective of the um the upstream owner maybe why these haven't been done so much in the past when in relation to upstream because you know you mentioned some midstream transactions there yes you've got to be careful you don't lose control you know you need control of the mm-hmm. asset and the state requires that you have control of those assets given the nature of hydrocarbon licensing so yeah. there, there are limitations on these things and we should never we should not think they're easy they're not they're highly structured
1: yeah no i think i think there's a risk as well though because as, as companies like for example shell exxon bp they used to own most of the pipelines in europe the oil producers mobile and so on and for them it was all kind of a monopoly rent. The danger, I think, for you know for, for gas in Europe is that as these companies simply return, reduce or go back to selling LNG at the terminal, who is going to be responsible for developing the infrastructure downstream and making sure that the gas reaches as far as possible? can? I think unbundling was good in many respects, but there, there could possibly be limits on how far companies would, would be interested in selling their gas to Europe if they can't control the delivery beyond the terminal. Yeah,
2: yeah. do you think there's a
1: risk? Yeah. I think hmm. they will. I mean that
2: you have to look at the underlying fundamentals in these markets, yep. and often with the um, infrastructure investments of that nature, um, you know sometimes there's to the extent there's a necessity for you know the market to be supported. You know some of the big obviously regulated with the regulated asset based mm-hmm. model, which controls yes. uh, what you can charge. Um, you, know, you you basically bid on the rate of return to set that charge. Um, that usually means you can recover your investment. But, yeah, so long as there's a demand for this, depending on how you've mm. structured your arrangement. So, so, again, as long as these things are structured right, um, then, you know, they're safe investments, you know, depend, you know of course, depending on the terms, etc., etc., and how you protect yourselves against changes of law, of course. Yeah. But there's a lot of demand for that type of investment. There's a lot of money out there that is very, very keen. On that type of investment and so I think from and and it it maybe raises a broader point about how do you structure investments what role does government play in terms of taking um, the industry into a a new direction if you like as we look forward to hydrogen capture and storage etc I
1: think that's a critical thing really is also you know regulatory risk Um, obviously yes there are two questions now you have to invest in the future we have to ensure that CCS works I guess we have to reassure that but what about what about these like you know people who invested in good faith 15 20 years ago or 10 years ago in ccgt's not knowing that it would be having hot days in july where you have negative prices i mean these weren't the kinds of things that people could expect to prepare for really were they this is a huge amount of uh, uncertainty which yeah. must have some yeah. effect on investors how, uh, how, how does the law firm go about <laughs> reassuring people that the money is well spent yeah, well, obviously at the laws, so we don't go into politics, some lawyers do. Um, but
2: it's really about helping investors understand um, the protection yeah, of the yeah. against those changes. I guess yeah. as time has gone by, you've seen what's happened in Europe and so when you're investing in other markets that might be behind Europe, you might have some understanding of what could happen in those markets. I mean, and if, if you're investing, say, in... Um, uh, say a CCGT in a developing country or some other country, um, you know, you might try to protect yourself in your concession agreement against changes of law. Um, you might mm-hmm. influence the PPA um, and to what extent mm-hmm. you're paying for the capacity, you know, just for being yes. in operation as opposed to the throughput. Yep. So, you know, as a lawyer, we have to help the clients understand all of those risks and we, you know, we yes. do a of markets, so we are supposed to try to foresee these, you know, contemplatable risks and, and build, build the protection as yes, necessary. So at least you know what risks you're taking, what risks you're not taking. Um, I suppose mm-hmm. the interesting thing there as well, you know, you've had the CCGTs in Europe. And you might say, well, they've suffered at the hands of the subsidisation of the, the renewable industry. But I, I suppose going forward, it might be that the CCGTs have to be subsidised to get into uh, blue hydrogen and things like that, which may affect the renewables industry. So it all yeah, comes
1: in. Let's hope the boot eventually ends up on the other foot, at least at least some of the time. <laughs> how, how do you think um, CCS or uh, well the yeah, CCS in particular is an extremely expensive uh, project development? Uh, hydrogen, you mentioned that as well. It, Governments seem to be calling most of the shots lobbied by either side of the uh, the green agenda. So how do you, again, how do you see investments being being encouraged into that? And do you even think it's a market anymore or is it a series of uh, very, very calculated balances so that nobody actually makes much money, but Europe meters targets and carbon emissions are uh, yeah. limited? Yeah,
2: I have to unpack that a little bit. I think the Markets, I think, you know, obviously energy is such a sensitive political topic as well as being yeah. a major commercial endeavor And so mm. to encourage participation in that in those markets in order to get competitive pricing um, you know the, the governments need to solve some of the You know some of the issues with the markets. I mean some unless there's sufficient policy support for some types of investment in some locations, they're not investable. Um, mm. Unless externalities are properly brought into the market, like carbon dioxide emissions and the damage they cause, um, that also you know, will favour some types of investments over others. So I think energy markets are classic markets where you need policy intervention until such point as you know, there's a level playing field. And you've seen that with the subsidisation of renewables um, over time. Mm. But, but what done in europe and the united states in particular is it's enabled the um you know, enabled the deployment at a large scale of different renewable technologies which have brought the cost down yes that they're now competitive and in many cases some you know some solar even cheaper some wind as well so the subsidization of the market uh enables the introduction of the new technologies and there's a very interesting parallel yes. with that and the current state of affairs with blue hydrogen and green hydrogen, mm. because what's effectively happening at the European level, is of press, as I understand it. There's a sort of a, a picking of the winner seems to be going on between blue and green, and there's a lot of debate um, at the European policy and legislative level around whether they should be favouring, you know, green over blue. Of course, green being the step forward, straight to basically you know, to... Yeah, taking, hydrogen, to... Out water, taking mm. hydrogen out of water. Mm. Which is, energy negative equation, but if you use renewable energy, abundant renewable energy to do it, and there's no other use for renewable energy, then maybe it works. But it won't be viable mm. for, for some time. But I think the role of the government here is to create the environment where these different technologies can be uh, experimented with, if you like, so that yes. over time the, the cheaper can prevail. You know, in order that you can actually decarbonise the fossil fuels or over time phase um, face, face them out. But over a period of time, that actually enables the technology to develop in an efficient way. And I think mm. that's something where maybe there's some issues right now in the world, William, around the fact that there's a sentiment around switching all the fossil fuels, right? you know, and going straight into renewables. And why do we need fossil fuels if solar's changing?
0: Yeah. You
1: know,
2: there are mm. some realities. Have to grip, right? Yeah,
1: this is what concerns me. Really, is the is the apparent. Refusal to accept that the world still needs an awful lot not just to re- not just to meet growing demand but to replace declines and yep. the idea that some NGOs are saying that This is brilliant the BP is restructuring because it recognizes there's no more place for oil and gas But that, that simply isn't true. And I think I think the public has become a little bit If you like uncritical of, of some of the stories they're being told
2: Yeah, they're almost being yeah the response coming from some corporate so maybe the industry at large is almost designed to match um the level of sophistication of the criticism and i think that's dangerous you know like you said at the very start with that's quoted from the iea there are some hardwired realities here around population prosperity yeah uh, and emissions and you know there's a lot of money there's a lot of oil and gas in the system um to enable the world the uh, world's well population to have enough energy to live the prosperous lives that they should expect. And uh, if we switch off fossil fuel investment, all those people won't get um, the standard of living. they living. They won't, they won't enjoy the benefits of economic development because you won't be yeah. able, to, unless there's a real step change in technology that we haven't currently understood, uh, you won't be able to develop the solar and wind quick enough. But even with an exponential increase in those technologies, you still need. To maintain the fossil fuels in the system, which means you need to decarbonise it, which means you need to allocate more money to those um, to those existing technologies. And I know that's politically unpopular, but you know well, that's yeah, just
1: money is in short supply. Network facts, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, money is in very short supply at the moment, and. The, the boring we're having to do, or the, the uh, quantitative easing, which has, been, which has been carried out, must at some point come home to roost. And I think householders are going to have less money to spend on nice ideas. I think it's all come at the, you know, the right time, <laughs> but the coincidence of that and everything else has, has really has, I think, exposed a lot of money to a lot of risk, which before was, if you like, yeah. not on yeah. agenda.
2: Yep. Well, like I said, there's, there's still a lot of money. The infrastructure funds still have plenty of money. Yes, that's
1: true. And there's a yes. role for government.
2: There's a role for government to create the business models to attract that money in, such that over time costs can come down to make it all effective. And I don't think there's really any way around that, unfortunately. And I think that reality will be whether that reality is felt in the next price spike of um, the gas prices, or whether it's felt today. You know, that's someone someone else needs to work that out. I think.
1: Thank you. Thank you Joe, any questions come in from
0: uh, the Great side uh, well Lewis, you were talking okay. about viewers um, mm-hmm. uh, yeah Lewis, you were Sorry. talking about this uh, battle going on between uh, blue and and green hi- hydrogen and um, the importance of having uh, an open door to all of the technologies so that you can end up with the uh, you know lowest cost most feasible uh, solution for for hydrogen energy um, and this this is a choice that Germany has had to had to make recently, and they they just adopted, as you, as you'll know, a new hydrogen strategy where they're only supporting the green hydrogen. Um, and you know the, the gas industry is naturally quite 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 peeved about this because uh, they want to play a role in this in in this uh, transition, and it it feels like a lost opportunity. Uh, Given, you know, Germany being the biggest gas market in Europe right now, uh, having all of this import infrastructure, I mean, you've got the, the Russian gas coming in, Norwegian gas, uh, they're building new LNG terminals, possibly. Um, Nord Stream 2 about to come online. It, you know, it feels like a lost lost opportunity, really. Uh, just wondered what your, your thoughts on mm. that, that situation are. Yeah, I mean, look, of
2: course it's good that um, Germany wants to lead. On, on that technology, because you see in the long term, of, of course, you know, green hydrogen, you know, if you look really look forward, that's the direction of travel. But it does feel like you need to go through that interim step, um, partly to um, ensure, you know, the, the, maybe the quick up, uptake of the um, hydrogen in the systems, because, uh, you know, obviously multiple countries can go down the blue hydrogen route. Um, you know, but also perhaps to some extent to protect existing investments. As long as the um, existing blue hydrogen can be, the CO2 can be stored, you know, and that's obviously the difference between blue and green. One of the major differences is you have to have carbon capture and storage um, for, for blue. Then it, it should be something that's supported, I, I think. And I'm, I'm sure um, in countries where they have maybe more of a domestic industry, maybe the United Kingdom being a good example, you can see that they may be more inclined to go down a route that maybe preserves both options um, and, and particularly you know protects the, um, the opportunity for, for blue hydrogen so I think the North Sea assets and all the investment that's been made there um, you know would be would be well supported by a, a blue hydrogen regime so it's interesting but at the EU level it hasn't been decided and the EU taxonomy uh would at this moment support either form because it doesn't it doesn't um specify beyond saying that your gas fired power would need to not exceed 100 grams of co2 per kilowatt hour it doesn't specify the technology so the eu tax interestingly does not pick a
0: winner even if germany has it's interesting it's
1: interesting
0: and um, you were—we uh, were also talking about this, um, these regulatory risks, and uh, Europe is very much at the forefront of this um, some a- antipathy towards towards upstream uh, development. Um, and one big example you had last year was um, Ireland uh, banning uh, offshore oil exploration, uh, which left a few companies in in the lurch. I mean, how, how big a risk do moves like that pose to European upstream right now? Um, and what, what sort of um, legal recourse might uh, investors have uh, if to deal with this, you know, to deal with um, investments they they've made are making um, potentially becoming worth a lot less or, or even worthless. Yeah. Yeah. No, look, it's one of the bigger risks facing
2: oil and gas companies today. Right. If you executives from oil and gas companies will, will say that um, you know the idea of a, a, a even a democratic country deciding they don't want um, this type of production anymore it can be a very popular thing to do by a government to say well we're going to stop it it's a good signal right it's a virtuous signal of some yeah, for someone
0: yeah.
2: to say well we're not going to participate in this but let's you know the, the, again going right back to the start you know if you look at the issue at the broadest level, you need to see it as a transition over time. And so I don't know how helpful those types of decisions are in the end, whether they really contribute to the problem. I mean, maybe something that could be done is that you focus on leading the decarbonisation effort. So, again, you go to your Germany example, that's going to help the world a lot, right? Maybe they haven't chosen the right way of doing it, but if they want to leap for 20 years into the future and start paying for that, technology upgrade of course they're going to make sure their companies have the ip to it as you'd expect unless unless other governments want to get involved and share it but that's constructive i think because that's really going to the heart of the issue i think banning it is is, is difficult because again you can't just switch to the ready. You're not ready to switch um, yeah. what can you do about it well it depends where you invest and how you invested you know you've got to look very carefully at um the terms these days um there are a lot of bilateral investment treaties you can take advantage of you know, and I don't want this to turn into a boring legal treatise, but, you know, oh, I mean, this, depending on what you in, the nature of the, um, the uh, intergovernmental relations between the, the country of the um, investing company and uh, the country you're investing into, You can structure your investments in a way where you can, let's say, at least maximise your protection against those things, against these major changes in the law. And you've got to look at those things these days. Uh, you know, you talked mm-hmm. about Um, subsidised energy, renewable energy or whatever coming into the fray, and you mentioned now cancellation of permits, or bad um, hydrocarbon activity, And, and you have to look at that these days when you're making your investments, you have to.
1: Yeah, it's all part of the risk, isn't it? Really, I guess as life goes on, and there's always going to be uncertainties, and you can't make a guaranteed or tight contract. Just make sure that any risks are uh, reasonably protected, and you get reimbursed for any problems. I think, yeah, a lot of those coming up now aren't there with the force majeure claims and the uh, in the COVID nineteen energy problems. But that's a problem for another day. I think I shan't tax uh, it uh, now. We've seen plenty of those
2: the last three months. I'll tell you that we've seen we've seen it from all angles. <laughs>
1: goodness well i think that kind of uh, brings us to an end unless there's anything lewis we haven't discussed that you think is worth uh, an aside or if not then I would like to uh, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Joe. I, I'm William Powell. I'm the uh, chief of Natural as well, as I may have said. It's been great. And I hope you listening to it in your offices elsewhere, in your homes, you've also found this useful. Many thanks to everybody for, for logging on and for taking the time to listen. Um, and I'm sure this will be available to download later on at some point. But for now, thank you very much and uh, enjoy the weekend or this is next week. I hope you had a good one last week. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Bye.